All right, since you guys are all stuck on movies, let me, anybody have a suggestion for what movie we should watch? No, Matt, we're not choosing the one that you talked about this morning, Matt. This is kid-friendly movies there, buddy. Uh, no, we're, we're looking forward to going and serving at uh, Martin Luther King. We're excited to be able to do this movie thing. Uh, what what um, Travis has asked us to do is to come in and just love on the families that are there. Uh, one of the things we're going to do is be able to provide uh, a take-home sheet for parents. Uh, you know, you watch some of these Disney movies or these kids' movies, and there's always themes that are really good. So we're going to provide a take-home for the families to be able to discuss, hey, what did we learn about this movie? What was good? You know, what can we apply to our life? So it's going to be a really fun thing. Uh, the goal is to have as many people there as we can. Uh, we want to love on these families, so uh, join us with that. Mark that on your calendar. And we'll have a couple other, other opportunities there at uh, Martin Luther King through the rest of the year. Uh, but go ahead and make sure you mark that on your calendar. As we get started this morning, uh, my name is Pastor Kevin. And if I haven't had the chance to meet you, um, I, I want to do that before the days end. So make sure you grab my hand and introduce yourself. I am, I'm anxious to meet you. Um, I want to ask this question as we start out today. Does leadership matter? Does leadership matter? I mean, as we think about, as we think about our country, uh, you know, I, I think about, does leadership matter? Absolutely, leadership matters. I mean, you think, about, you think about some of the governors in the past couple years who have gotten in trouble because they didn't have very good leadership. And because of some of the choices they made, they resigned from their positions. Leadership absolutely matters. And so we're going to look today into 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you have a Bible, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, if you need a Bible, we've got an usher in the back who would love to come and bring you one. Just put your hand up. We'd love to be able to give you a Bible. You can keep along with us. Um, if not, the, the, the verses will be on the screen. Uh, really, we're going to look at today, we're going to look and say, what does God have to say about leadership, specifically leadership within the church? Leadership sometimes can be one of those subjects that people are a little sensitive to. People, hey, I'm a little uh, hesitant to follow leadership. But we want to look and say, God, what do you have to say about leadership? And so if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to read the whole chapter today. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And it says this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, where he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, nor addicted to much wine, nor greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Uh, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, 
you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up to glory. And that is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? God, we are thankful for this opportunity to be here today. We're thankful for uh, uh, the snow not burying us last night. And uh, Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to gather with your people. Uh, As we open up your word today, God, I pray that you would give us understanding, that you would help us to, to hear your word today, that you would speak to every one of us individually. God, you know where we're coming in. You know what's going on this week. You know what's going on in our lives. And God, I pray that you would speak to every one of us individually here today. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do a work in our lives and that you would draw us to yourself. Lord, we love you and praise you. And again, we ask for your spirit to be with us right now. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So as we look at this text, what we want to do is we actually want to start at the end first. Before we get into leadership in the church, before we get into the qualifications that God has for leaders within the church, uh, we want to know what, why leadership is important. We want to know why specifically leadership in the church is significant. So start with me and look at verse 14. Paul is writing, again, Paul is the author of this book. He's writing it to a young pastor named Timothy in a church in Ephesus. And Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing, I'm writing these things to you so that. He's saying this is the purpose of this letter. This is why I am writing this entire book of 1 Timothy. He says it's this. He says that if I delay, now you need to look in, in your Bible. If this verse is not underlined, verse 15 is not underlined. You need to take a minute and underline this verse. He says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. See, this, we, we decided a couple weeks ago, this was the theme verse for the entire book of 1 Timothy. And what you see here in verse 15, what you really see is you see the significance of the church. Paul, in verse 15, he gives us three descriptions of what the church is. He gives three separate and distinct descriptions. First, first thing he says, he says, the church is the expression of God's family. Literally, he means that the church is a household of God. See, it's God's family unit. It's his children. Now, you may know me. I've got my beautiful wife, Samantha, and we have five kids the last time I checked. And so that is my family unit at home. That is my household. And, and the, way, uh, the way our house operates is, is Samantha and I, we kind of set some rules and we say kids, you know, kids are supposed to go to bed at this time and, and kids are supposed to do these chores. And, and Saturday morning, that's the, the, day, the time that we all spend time cleaning the house together. And the kids kind of have an expectation. These are, this is the way our household operates. These are the expectations that we have within our house. In a very real sense, the book of 1 Timothy is Paul helping us understand this is how we are to behave in God's household. By saying this is the household of God, we can look at 1 Timothy and say, this is Paul saying this is how we operate, this is how we govern, this is how we, we, we interact with each other. 
This is how we behave in the household of God. As a part of God's family, these are the rules and these are the expectations of God's household. So we are in a very real way as the church. We are the expression of God's family right here. Isn't that great? That this right here, this misfit, ragtag group of, 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 of people like you and I, we are the expression of God's family. Then second, Paul says, Paul says that we are the inhabitants of God's presence. He says we are the church of the living God. Literally, we are the assembly of the living God. The church is a place where God dwells. I mean, this is, this is a great phrase when we read this. When, and we, if we understand the people in Ephesus, as, as they were reading this kind of language, it would bring them back to a place like, like Bethel. In Genesis chapter 28, when Jacob meets God there, and he says, surely God is in this place. As the original hearers were listening to this, they would think back to Moses and the tabernacle. When Moses said, the living God will dwell among you in the tabernacle. His presence will be with you through the tabernacle. Or they would think back to the descriptions of the Old Testament of the temple. That God's indwelling presence among his people would happen in the temple. I mean, this, this, this verse right here, verse 15, when it says this is a place where God dwells, this is one of the places where we turn the pages of the New Testament and we find that we don't have to go to a certain place. We don't have to go to a certain city. We don't have to go to a certain building to find God's presence. God's presence is right here. God's presence is with us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, For we, this is talking about the church, he says, For we are the temple of the living God. We, as the church, we're the temple. This is a place where God, where, where God dwells. Ephesians 2.22 says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I mean, do you hear this language? As the church, we are the dwelling place of God. An assembly of God's people, he dwells among us. Do you realize how significant it is that when we gather together like this, when we gather together, even in a room like this, even here this morning, as the assembly of God's people, that we are gathered and the living God is among us? Isn't that fantastic to know that as we gather, the, the, the presence of God is right here. He's living in our midst. We are worshiping him in his presence in his household. We are listening to his word. We are gathering around his table. The inhabitants of God's presence is right here. And if that's not enough, Paul says the third part. He says the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. He says the church is a pillar and buttress of truth. Paul says that, that as a church, we are the guardians of God's truth. We are the guardians of God's word. What does this mean? Well, again, you need to think back. Think back to Ephesus for a second. Think back to um, the temple of Diana, which is one of the seven great ancient wonders of the world. If you haven't seen a picture of it, go home and Google uh, Temple of Diana, and you'll see this, this fantastic building, this fantastic, and there's these columns, there's, there's hundreds of columns that hold up this, this marble rooftop, okay? And so, and Google it, it's, it's, it's actually pretty fancy. But what you have is you have this shiny uh, marble rooftop that's held up by these iconic 
pillars, these, these columns that are all around it. And as you can picture this image in your mind, Paul says the church, he's saying you as the church, you are the pillar, the buttress of God's truth. So what does this mean? Well, what does those columns do? What does a column do? What, is, what, is a, what does a pillar do? What does it mean for us to be a pillar and a buttress of God's word? Follow this thought of what Paul's trying to say. He's saying the church, we have the privilege and the responsibility of preserving God's word. We hold it firm. This is what pillars do. Pillars, this is what a buttress does. It holds on to something firm. It holds something up. So this is what we do as a church from age to age and from generation to generation. We have the responsibility as a church of holding firm and fast to the word of God. The church was to defend the 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 church was to defend against false teachings in the first century and we in the 21st century and every century in between we have the responsibility of continuing to defend God's word and hold God's word up. This is one of our responsibilities as a church. As Restoration Church, we have the responsibility to hold God's word and 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 ensure that we faithfully pass it on to the next generation. So as we hold firm to God's word, we also proclaim God's word. We hold it high. We hold it high for all to see. We hold it high and say, this is a banner in which we gather under. I mean, this is what columns do. Columns, uh, they hold something firm. They hold it up high. And that's what we want more than anything else from Restoration Church, is that we would hold God's word high is our standard. When we come in and we study God's word together, this isn't just the pastor's opinions. This isn't, this isn't a denominational tell, telling us this is what you're supposed to believe. This, this isn't uh, holding high man's innovations. This isn't holding high our creativity or our possessions or our things. We want to hold one thing high, and that is God's word. We want to see people, we want people to see it and to hear it proclaimed loudly. Preserved, proclaimed, held firm in the body, held firm right here. This is what the church is supposed to do. We're supposed to hold firm God's word. So this is who we are as a church. This is what we do. The church, do you get this? It's a pretty big deal. The, it's a pretty big deal. We are the very guardians of, of God's word. We are the very inhabitants of God's presence. We are God's expression of his family. This is what the church is. So this, the God who spoke the world into being, the God who calls the stars by name and he holds the nations in his hand, the God who reigns and rules over everything in the entire universe. And this awe-inspiring reality is that God dwells among us right here. What an amazing truth this morning that even right here, even in the midst of the snow, God dwells amongst us. There's nothing routine or casual about what we are doing here this morning. As a church, we are the assembly, the, the dwelling place of the living God. Paul says in verse 15 that God is in the house. This is what he's saying. He's saying God is in our house. He's in the house. And this is why if you were to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you see Paul. Paul was talking about the church and he said there would be an unbeliever who would come into the gathering of the church. And the unbeliever would fall on his face and he would exclaim, 
God is really among you. I mean, this is the picture he's saying. He's saying an unbeliever, somebody would come in to the church and they would fall on their face and say, wow, there's something different about this place because God is among you. And that is our prayer every week at Restoration Church. I mean, I pray every week that people would come into this place and they would, they would know, they would be in the presence of God. They would walk in and say, there's something different about this place than any other place. There's something different about the church because we are the, the dwelling place of God. God lives among us. This isn't just some casual get-together where we get to drink coffee and talk about things that make us feel good. No, this is, this is our opportunity to actually experience God in our presence. To be in the presence of our Savior. See, I pray, I pray that this morning, that every one of us in here would know and would feel God's presence right here around us. That we would feel there's something different about this place than any other place because it's God's presence. And if that's not enough, Paul keeps going in verse 16. Paul, he's just described the significance of the church. But look at verse 16. Paul says, great indeed we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now let me say something here. When Paul talks about a mystery, he's not talking about something that's some kind of unsolved mystery where, where he's trying to get clues that need to be found. When Paul's talking about this mystery, uh, he's talking about something that has been hidden for a time, but has now been revealed. That the mystery is, there's something that was hidden, but now this mystery has been revealed. So that's the way that Paul's talking about when he says this mystery. So he's talking about something that's been hidden, and now it's been revealed. And he says specifically what's been revealed is the mystery of godliness. Circle this word godliness in your Bible. There are nine times in 1 Timothy that Paul uses this word godliness. It is one of Paul's favorite words that he likes to use. And it's probably even one of the primary themes of this book of 1 Timothy. And Paul uses this word to describe the kind of life that is centered on God. A life that is permeated by a God consciousness. This describes somebody that when they wake up in the morning and they go throughout their day and they go to bed or bed at night, this is somebody who is completely God-centered, who is God-saturated in their thinking, in their planning, in their doing, and their speaking, and their relating to others. This godliness is somebody that God is always on the forefront of their mind. As they go about their day, they're always coming back to what God would want them to do. And so Paul says there's, there's, there's this godliness, there's this God-centeredness, there's this God-consciousness that should permeate everything we do. From morning to bed, our, this, this God should permeate everything that we do. So Paul says, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And now he reveals what is the mystery of godliness. He reveals and he says, he was manifested in the flesh Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up to glory. See, Paul is describing a person. He's saying, you want to know the mystery of godliness is? He says it's a person. Who is the person that he's talking about? Who is Paul describing as manifested in the flesh, as vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up to glory? Who is this that Paul is describing as a mystery of godliness? It's Jesus. 
It is absolutely Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who was manifested as a, as a son of God. Jesus was the one who was vindicated by the Spirit, who was seen by angels, who's been proclaimed among the nations and has continued to being proclaimed among the nations. He is the one who has believed in the world, who was taken up to glory. It's Jesus. And Paul is saying the mystery of godliness is Jesus. He, he, he means that Jesus is godliness disclosed. Jesus is godliness revealed. Jesus is the manifestation. Jesus is what godliness is. So how does, how does Jesus display, or how does Jesus become and reveal the mystery of godliness? He displays the majesty of God. So this godliness that Paul is talking about, this, this God-centered life, it doesn't come from us being perfect, from us being righteous, from us doing all the right things. This godliness isn't because we're so great and because we follow all the rules. No, this godliness, it comes from Jesus. The godliness in our lives, it comes from Jesus. This God-centered life is the overflow of the Christ-empowered life. This is having Jesus dwelling in us. When we have Jesus in us, when we allow Jesus to, to, to take his dwelling in our hearts and in our lives, it centers us on God. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying godliness is really all about Jesus. For us to be godly people isn't because we follow all the rules, isn't because we're so righteous, isn't because we do all the right things, it's because of Jesus in our lives. So Paul is using all of this as a foundation. He's saying, he's saying we have to recognize what it means to be the church. The church. This is what the church is. The church is a household of God. The church is the dwelling place of God. The church is the pillar and the buttress of God's word. We're the guardians of God's words. And we are indwelt by his son Jesus. And that gives us a godliness. Our godliness comes from our relationship with him. And, and what Paul's saying is all of these things should radically change the way we live. Being a part of this church, having Jesus dwelling in us, it should radically change the way that we live. It should radically change the way that we even operate as a church. A church isn't just a, a, an organization. It isn't just a business. It isn't just a, 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 an organization. It is the place where God dwells. It is, it is so much more than that. And based on all of this, based on the fact that there is no greater institution throughout the entire world or throughout all of history, there is no greater institution than the church. Based on that, I think we can realize that leadership really does matter. Because of what the church is, leadership really does matter. Now, in light of the importance and the significance of the church, Paul is going to describe two types of leaders in chapter 3. He's going to give us a, a description of what these leaders are and some of their qualifications to be a leader. And getting these two positions of leadership right, being biblical when it comes to church leadership, is absolutely necessary. Leadership is absolutely necessary. It affects everything we do. Now, sometimes when we talk about leadership within the church, there comes a temptation for some of us to kind of tune out. And say, well, all right, that's that church leadership, the church offices, you know. I don't really want to worry about that. See, what's likely is that there are many of you in here who have had a bad experience with church leadership. It's likely that there are many of us in here today who have had a bad experience 
with bad church leadership. Some of us have had it worse than others. But these kind of experiences can keep deep, can create deep wounds within us. And they leave us with lasting scars. And I know some of you, I know your story, and you have some of these scars within you that you carry. You have some of these hurts, some of these burdens that you still feel today. And more often than not, what happens is these, these awful experiences, they govern how we approach church in the future. They govern how we, we get involved with church in the future. They govern how we trust the church in the future. And so to avoid being hurt again, we make little agreements with ourselves. And we say things like, you know, I will never do that again. We say things like, I will never trust another pastor. I will never become a member of another church. I will never serve in the church again. I won't ever get close to anybody in the church again. I'll never give a dollar to another church again. And, and we feel completely justified because we are self-protecting ourselves from, from experiencing hurt. So we remain skeptical and cynical, and we refuse to submit to any leadership. We refuse to, to recognize any leadership within the church. Because the reality is, we realize that none of these leaders can ever possibly uh, meet the standard of, the exp- of perfection for leadership that we have placed on, on leaders. I mean, nobody will ever fit your, your definition of what a leader should be. You know, elders, pastors, none of us are perfect. And you know, and the danger in our 21st century is, is the reality is there is no elder, there's no pastor who's going to be perfect. But in the 21st century, we have this, this, this thing, this tool called podcasting. And what happens is as we podcast our, our favorite leaders, what happens is we listen to them online and we, we begin to say, man, this guy is just the perfect guy. And whoever you podcast, maybe it's Mark Driscoll or, or John Piper, you begin to hold this leader up and say, man, this guy is the stuff. This guy is perfect. But the reality is they're not perfect. The reality is, they can't shepherd you. You are seeing a little portion of them online, but you're not seeing them actually interact with you. You're not seeing them lead you. And so, and so they don't really, you don't really know them, and they don't really know you, and they're not really leading you. They're just teaching God's Word. And so we need to understand leadership absolutely matters in the local church. Leadership is especially important in the church. And we need to understand that when we look at leadership within the church, we need to understand who's at the top of our org chart. Who's at the top of the org chart? The Bible is clear that Jesus is the head of the church. The Bible is absolutely clear Jesus is the head of the church. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23 says, He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who dwells in all. Ephesians 4, 15 says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head unto Christ. Ephesians 5.23 says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church in his body and is himself its savior. So Jesus absolutely is the head of the church. He's on the top of our work chart. Matthew 16.18 says, Jesus is the leader who builds the church. First. 1 Peter 5, 4 says that Jesus is its senior pastor who rules the church. So make no mistake, as we organize Restoration Church, make no mistake, Jesus is our head. Jesus is our senior leader. He's the head of this church. 
And so if we understand, if we understand that this is the way that God has created the church, that Jesus is the head of the church, human leadership then, human leadership should be little more than qualified Christians who are following Jesus and encouraging other people to follow Jesus. When we look at leadership within the church, human leadership, all we're really doing is trying to find people who are following Jesus and who can point others to follow Jesus. That's what leadership in the church is all about. So now in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, Paul is going to describe two specific roles of leadership within the church. First being the office of an elder, and second being the office of a deacon. We'll start out with first with uh, the office of an elder. One thing to explain is as the Bible is going to refer to, to elders, you also see the term overseer and, and, and pastor and bishop. These are all uh, the same, mean the same thing. They can be used interchangeably. So you see this word elder and, and pastor and bishop and overseer. It's all the same position. It's all talking about the same position of leadership. Now, oftentimes what you see in churches, churches will select their, their leaders, their elders from within the church, and they look for people who are effective leaders in uh, the secular world. They're going to look for people who have led successfully in, in, in their business or in the community or in their school or in the government. Um, and so they begin to look for people that are, are successful, are gifted, are talented men. Um, maybe what ends up happening as well as in churches is as they're selecting leaders, they're going to look for people who are popular. They're going to look and say, hey, everybody likes this guy, so he should be a leader, right? I mean, everybody likes him, right? So that means he should be our leader. And so churches will have nominating committees, and, and what happens to church leadership often looks like a democracy. And we're Americans, right? Democracy is a good thing, right? I mean, uh, democracy typically is going to be a very good thing. And, and on the surface, you want a guy like that to be in charge. You want them to have leadership, right? Somebody who has proven leadership within the secular world. Somebody who's popular amongst the people. I mean, that's the kind of person that we want in leadership on the surface. But truthfully, um, w we like the idea of thinking that our guy will be able to be in leadership so he can promote our cause. And is uh, in a democracy, but we'll see that, that Paul here is going to give us something completely different. He's going to describe something different. The qualifications that Paul is going to give for an elder and for a leader in the church, they aren't necessarily about personality. They aren't about their skills. It's not about their leadership experience. Rather, he's looking for character qualities. He's looking for somebody's character. He's saying these are the, these are the important things. It's is not their experience, not, 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 not how well they're liked amongst the people. Rather, what's most important is the, what kind of character this person has. In fact, we're going to see that church leadership, it isn't, a, it, it isn't a democracy. It's a theocracy. It's not a democracy. It's a theocracy. And so as Paul begins describing elder, elder leadership, the first thing that he says is, Elders must aspire to be leaders. He says this is a good thing for men to desire to lead. Now this is not the same thing as, as longing for power or longing for, for a position that's driven by a selfish motivation. Rather, this is a desire to serve the body of Christ. A desire to care for the body of Christ. We need to understand in our mind that being an elder, being a pastor, it isn't about authority. It's not about power. It's not about lording your, your, your position over somebody else. Truthfully, an elder, what an elder is, is a servant leader. An elder is a servant leader. 
Paul says being an elder isn't about power or authority. It's about serving. I mean, this is what Jesus said a true leader is. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the Son of God, didn't come so we can serve him. He came to serve us. So truly, leadership in the church, it really comes down to serving the body of Christ. It comes down to servant leadership. As elders, as pastors, as, as we lead, and as we pray, and as we teach, and as we care for the church, it's all about serving the church. It's all about serving the people in the church. It's not about power and authority. It's about loving and serving people. So Paul describes the qualifications for an elder. And uh, remember these qualifications, they aren't about giftedness or experience or education. Rather, they're all about character. They're about godliness. There, there are 15 different characteristics that, that, that Paul lists here for the office of an elder. And what we're going to do is we're going to take these, these characteristics, these qualifications, and we're going to break them down into four different categories. Rather than looking at all of them, we're going to look at uh, four different categories that these characteristics fall into. The first one, we'll start with qualifications in relation with God, in relationship with God. The most important relationship that a man can have is his relationship with God. Because if his relationship with God isn't healthy, then all his other relationships are going to suffer. So first and foremost, in relationship with God, Paul says a, a, an elder, a pastor, must be above reproach. Now this is kind of really an overarching qualification. See, honestly, there are a lot of dumb things that a pastor can do um, that are completely stupid and would totally disqualifying them from serving as an elder in the church. And there's just so many things that, you know, and Paul, he could have written all the dumb things that guys could do that would disqualify them. But the problem is, is as guys, even though there's a list of dumb things we shouldn't do, we'd always find another dumb thing to do, right? I mean, wives, isn't that what your husbands do? You're like, ah, there's another dumb thing you thought of? I mean, youth pastors, youth pastors are known for this. Youth pastors are known for doing just dumb things. I mean, I remember there was a youth pastor who, who kidnapped some of his students because he thought it was a good experience for the kids and it was a mock kidnapping. It was meant to be a joke. That didn't turn out so well for that youth pastor. There was, there was, another, uh, there was another youth pastor I heard a story of. I went to a conference and this youth pastor told the story and, and he had this idea that he would take the youth group and they filled up a bunch of water balloons and they went outside of a strip club and they thought it'd be a really good idea to throw water balloons at the people coming out of the strip club. And so they're throwing water balloons, and I'm like, you're an idiot. And he's like, it gets worse. It gets worse. He says, then somebody called the police, and the police came. I'm like, oh, my gosh. He goes, it gets worse. I'm like, well, what happened next? He said, I dove in the bushes, and the police had to deal with all the kids instead of me. <laughs> that is dumb. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's another youth pastor. There's another pastor. And he says, well, well, you know, what I do is I go smoke weed with the youth group. And I'm like, what? And he goes, well, the Bible doesn't say don't smoke weed with the youth group. Idiots. So when it says above reproach, it means don't be stupid. It says, don't be stupid. Don't, this is kind of a, a junk drawer for sin. I mean, this is, this is things where we got to look and say, you know, don't be dumb, man. You've got to have some, a little bit of, of, of wisdom about you. Be above reproach. The second thing in relationship with God, it says, not be a new convert. 
I mean, these, these must be men who are mature in their faith. Now, when we see this, sometimes we think, well, that means they have to be a gray-haired guy. No, it's not talking about age. It's talking about a maturity in their faith. The reality is, I know some people who have been Christians for a long time, who have, 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 have the look of wisdom on the outside with their hair and, and everything else, but they're not very mature in their faith. And I know some young men who are, uh, who are young in age, but God has matured them. God has given them a maturity of the faith. And so, and so Paul, Paul is warning that new believers or young leaders, sometimes they cannot handle the weight of leading a church. They can become, as Paul says in verse 6, they become puffed up with conceit. So putting a new convert, a new Christian, in a position of leadership would lead them to pursue uh, leadership for all the wrong reasons. So he says they must not be a new convert. He says also that an elder, a pastor, an overseer should be able to teach. They should be able to hold firm to God's word. They should know doctrine and be able to refute false doctrine. This man has to know his Bible. He has to know what God's Word said. He must be able to communicate it. This doesn't mean that they have to be the guy who comes up and preaches a sermon every Sunday, but they have to be in a setting where they can explain God's Word and help other people to understand it. Titus, in the book of Titus, he says uh, that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So an elder, a shepherd, a pastor, an overseer, they should be able to feed and protect the church. And they should be able to kill wolves who want to lead into false doctrines. This is a qualification that is unique to elders. This is not required by members or, or deacons to be able to teach. Um, but it does, not, and again, it doesn't mean that every elder has to have the gift of preaching. It just means that he should be able to, to communicate God's word. He should be able to know God's word and have a conversation and explain God's word. So Paul moves on to the second area. He says the second area for qualifications in, is in our relationship to our family. After, after his relationship with God, uh, an elder, a pastor, we have to evaluate their relationship to their family. A man's relationship to his wife and his children and his home, that, rela- that relationship to his family, it can disqualify a man from serving in leadership in the church. How a man leads his first church at home will determine how he leads God's church. So first off, it says that a husband must be, uh, the, or, or elder must be the husband of one wife. He must be a one-woman man. He must be a successful husband. The first thing that Paul lists as the most important thing for a pastor is his faithfulness to his wife, that he shepherds her heart. The health of a man's marriage is one of those most common disqualifiers for for a man to become an elder or a pastor. The phrase, husband of one wife, isn't speaking towards polygamy. It's speaking to the idea of a one-woman man. Is he faithful to his wife? Is he in love with his wife? Is he pursuing his wife? Is he uh, chasing after and pursuing his wife and his wife alone? This doesn't necessarily just talk about having uh, sexual relationships outside of uh, marriage. It's also talking about emotional. Are you emotionally tied to your wife? Or are you emotionally tied to other women? Paul is saying an elder must be a one-woman man. Second, he says he has to manage the family or the household well. He has to be a successful manager of his home. 
The second most important thing is, is, is will he manage his family well? Without question, the reality is men and women, they manage and work to accomplish this together. I mean, I know I can't keep my house going if it wasn't for my wife, my better half. But the reality is, do they care for their household? Meaning, do they take care of their money? Are they, are they sent into collections? Do they have past bills that are due? Um, are they taking care of their possessions, of their resources? And even time, are they good stewards of the time that they have? I mean, their life is supposed to be a model for others. And so his home is his home, a place where everything's falling apart. I once heard this old pastor say uh, to, if a woman or if a home is falling apart, then that's how the woman's going to feel about their, their, their life. It, that's going to how they feel with their marriage. If, if their house is falling apart, then a woman's going to feel like, man, everything's falling apart. And so the question is, men, are you taking care of your home? Are you managing your home well? Are you taking care of things that need to be done? And thirdly, thir- third description for a relationship with his family is, does he have respectful children? Part of the management of his family, if God should bless him, is how does this elder, this man, how does it relate to his children? How does he lead his children? Let me throw a word of caution. Sometimes we look at this and we say, well, that means pastor kids, pastor's kids and elder's kids have to be perfect, right? It's not saying... (laughs) We are not saying that pastor's kids and elder's kids have to be perfect. They should not have a different standard than other kids. But what this means is, does an elder's kids, does a pastor's kids, do they respect him? Because it's one thing as a pastor to come to church and talk about faith and talk about living your life for God. But then he goes home and he doesn't practice it with his family. And if his kids can't respect dad, if dad lives one way at church but leaves a completely another way at home, if his kids don't respect his dad, there's a disconnect. There's something wrong here. So the question is, do, does the kids respect their dad? I mean, the reality is, and every father in here, you need to understand You are the first pastor of your kids. Every father, if you have kids, you are their first pastor. You're a part of Restoration Church. I love your family. I love your kids. But dads, you're their first pastor. You're the first responsibility. And that goes for me too. And let me just say this. Let me just say this. I love every one of you. I love being the pastor of Restoration Church. I love your families. But I tell you what, my kids come before you. My kids are my first church. And if I fail in my first church, then what we do here doesn't matter. So Paul says that a man's uh, family, his marriage, his household, his parenting is important to whether or not they can be an elder of the church because if they can't manage their home well, if they can't manage their family well, how are they going to manage the household of God? So the third set of qualifications Paul lists are in relationship to himself. A man's relationship with himself, his own identity, his personal behavior. This is key if a man is going to be a leader in the church. Paul's list is quite extensive. And there are some of these that are open to some interpretation. But we're going to list them out here. First, is, is the man self-controlled? Is he quick-tempered or is he measured? Does he have sound decision-making? Is he given by any whim or does he think things through and make sound decisions? Secondly, is he sober-minded? Can he clearly communicate his thoughts? Does he think clearly? Third, 
not given to drunkenness. Do you know what this one means? Does he have any addictions? Is he addicted to alcohol? Is he addicted to, to any sort of drug? And fourth, not a lover of money or greedy. Is the man financially content, responsible, and upright? He's important in the church. And if you can't manage money well, if you are a greedy person, then church leadership is not the place where you need to be. And fourth, the fourth area of qualifications is in relationship with others. I mean, the fact that a man uh, must have a relationship with others is important. Man, if you say, well, it's just me and my family, then I don't know if you are qualified to lead the church. We have to be in relationship with other people. His faith is not only worked out with himself and his family, but his faith is worked out with others. In other words, does he consider others more important than himself? If he believes the gospel, does he actually live it out? Is he living on mission of sharing the gospel in his faith and his community? So first, first Paul says a man has to be, um, we'll start with uh, not violent, but gentle. Not violent, but gentle. Uh, uh, does he react calmly? You know, sometimes men, we have this tendency just to start punching people in the throat, right? Or, you know, I'm not going to mention any men specifically, but sometimes we have the tendency to, to stab. I mean, that's just a part of some guys and kind of the way we respond to people. But are we violent? Can we control ourselves? Not quick-tempered. Gentle. Is he gracious and forgiving of uh, failures and criticisms? Not quarrelsome. He says he needs to be well thought of by outsiders. Well thought. He has to have a good rep- reputation. I mean, the reality is, men, how are you known at work? I mean, we, I mean, everybody, every man has a desire. Hey, I want to be known for being good at what I do. Well, maybe you're an engineer. Maybe you're, uh, uh, maybe you're a teacher. Maybe uh, wh- whatever you do. Maybe you're a salesman. Are you? Ha- do you have a good reputation? Would anybody even know that you're a Christian by the way you work? Or are you known as a guy that, hey, by whatever means, I'm going to get my thing done. I'm not going to push, and I don't really care who I hurt. I don't really care what I do. I'm just going to do so I can become great. And what is your reputation? Because an elder is supposed to have a good reputation in the community. It says they must be respectable. What this means is, is a man worth following and imitating. As an elder, as, as a pastor, you should be somebody that people in the church could look up to. And they should, they should say, hey, you know what? I would love for my son to end up like him. As an elder, as a pastor, we should look at my, my, look at my young daughter. And I want to say, I want my daughter to marry a guy like this. That's the kind of man that should be as an elder of the church. Is he respectable? You know, when I look at these qualifications, all 15 of these, these are high standards. Jesus has set the bar high, not low. And the reality is, I don't know if anybody could ever meet these standards fully. Actually, there is one person who could meet the standards fully, and that was Jesus. Jesus met every one of these standards to perfection. And that's why we look to him. That's why we look to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are our first supreme leader. You are the senior leader of the church. You're the senior pastor, and we just follow you. I mean, you are the perfect elder. Now, as a 10-month-old church, the question is, do we have elders? Do we have elders at our church? Not yet. 
not yet. We are in process of, of establishing, of putting elders in place. But being that 11 months ago, we didn't exist. We decided it was expedient for us rather to create a leadership team that helps in overseeing and, and helps uh, the church move forward. But it, because all these qualifications are characteristics are, uh, of a person's character, we wanted a, a time to be able to observe our leadership team, to be able to observe the men that God has called to our leadership team to verify that their character meets these qualifications. So do we have elders in place? Not yet. We're in process of that. You want to say, well, well, who's on the leadership team? Well, Jim Herring in the back, Rob Caldwell, who's in the nursery, um, Nate Montgomery right here. These are the leadership team. These are the men that we're looking to see, does their life, does their character reflect what God's Word says for an elder? Because I tell you what, leadership really matters. And if we rush somebody into leadership in a position that they aren't ready for, man, remember how important and how significant the church is? We don't want to damage what God has done in the church. Well, we got to finish. The second type of leader that Paul talks about is a leading servant. A leading servant called a deacon. A deacon. A deacon is truly a servant. The word for deacon here is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as a servant, as a helper, as a minister. So I would say that a deacon is a leading servant. So verses 8 through 10 Paul lists some uh, qualifications, some general qualifications for deacons. He says that they are to be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. Again, do you see some of these being the same? Uh, Not greedy, to have a strong faith and clear conscience. He says they must be tested. It says a deacon must be tested in verse 10. Now when we get to verse 11, we see this kind of a a weird translation. Um, Verse 11 says, uh, speaking towards, uh, it says, their wives must be dignified. Deacons' wives. Now, this word deacons' wives, um, it can be translated differently. Sometimes they translate it wives, and other times they translate it as to women. And so uh, there's debate. Does this mean the, the wives of deacons or have these uh, qualifications? Or is this speaking to women deacons? Now, what's interesting, the reason that I would say this is talking about women serving as deacons is because it would be odd that God would have, that Paul would write down these qualifications for a deacon's wives, but you don't see the qualifications for an elder's wife. And so we would say that verse 11 is speaking towards what are the qualifications for a woman deacon, for a female deacon. Those are there to be dignified. They are not to be slanderers. They are to be sober-minded. They're to be faithful in all things. And lastly, in verse 12, Paul speaks specifically of qualifications for male deacons. He says, male deacons must be the husband of one wife. Again, they've got to be a one-woman man. And they must manage their children and households well. Now, as we try and bring this to a close, sometimes we have the danger uh, of elevating the position of elder. We look and say, well, that elder, that pastor, man, man that's the top spot. That's, that's the sweet spot. That's where we all want to be. That's, that's the good spot, you know? And we, we elevate them as they get a high priority, a high value. But let me say that a church absolutely needs more people serving as deacons than they do as elders. We need servants within the church. Leading servants who are doing whatever they can to help the church flow, to help the church move forward, to help people be loved, to help people be welcomed into the family of God. 
And I'm, I'm thankful that there are so many of you that are serving here at Restoration Church. You are leading servants in what you do. And you know, one of the things that we don't do enough is we don't say thank you. So wherever you serve, thank you. Thank you for serving. Because this is what we, 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 we need more people serving in this capacity. So how do we close? Kind of a weird text. How do we close? Let me, let me say this. Restoration Church, every one of you, you are loved. Every one of you, you are loved. Your family is loved. The leadership team here at Restoration Church, none of us are here because of prestige. None of us are here because of power and authority, because we have so much to offer. We're here because we love you. We are here because we love and we care about you. We worry for you as we worry for our own families. We pray earnestly that God will continue to work in your life and that your faith will continue to grow and you would be continued to be shaped to become more like Jesus. That is why we are here. That is why we have leaders in place, because we love you. Because we want to see God continue to reach you. God continue to, to grow you and to change you. That is why we are here. That is what the, the reason that we come every week here. That's why we've committed to being in leadership. It's because we love you. We were reminded at the beginning of our time together that this is the church of the living God. That God is in our presence. That God is here meeting with us. That the living God is here. So I, what I want right, to do right now is I want to invite you. I want to invite you to join me in worshiping Him. God's in our presence. Can we praise Him for who He is and what He has done? I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And as they do that, we're going to pray. And I'm going to invite you just to stand and, and to worship Christ however you need to. You know, for you, maybe you've had one of those weeks where it felt like all hell was breaking loose. If you've had one of those weeks, I'd invite you just to call out to God in prayer. Just sit in your seat and say, God, I need to spend some time with just you. If you need to worship God through, through just praising him for who he is and what he has done, I invite you to do that. But let's respond in the presence of God today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, for this opportunity to be in your house. We thank you, God, that, that, that we can understand exactly what the church is about. That, God, this is your household. This is a place where you dwell this is a place where we, we, we hold firm your truth. And God, I pray that we would understand how insignificant this church is. God, I pray that as you have brought new people to our, to our church, that we started 10 months ago and you've continued to grow us. Lord, I pray that you would continue to, to call people to be a part of this church. That they would say, man, there's something different about this place. I, I feel something different. And they would say, hey, that's the Spirit of God here. God, I pray that every one of us would be able to feel the Spirit of God. God, I pray as we, as we talk through the issue of leadership within the church, Lord, I pray that we would surrender ourselves all to you, that we would follow you and follow the mission that you have for every one of us. God, I pray that for those who have had hurts in the past, Lord, I pray that you would put your healing hand on them, that you would engulf them in your arms and let them know that they're loved. Let them know that they are prayed for. Let them know that they are not alone. And God, I pray for the leadership within this church that you would give us wisdom, that you would remain, help us remain faithful to you, that we'd be surrendered in all that we do to seek you and to seek your will in our lives and the will of this church. 
God, we love you and praise you. And we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.